Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule, hence the title. They can pick four things that they cherish and would like to preserve, but they also have to pick one thing that they loathe, something they'd like to be rid of from their life, by burying it in the ground and never having to think about it again. My guest in this episode is the actor Steve Delaney, who is universally better known by his alter ego, Count Arthur Strong. Steve has appeared as an actor in shows such as Juliet Bravo, Casualty, The Bill and Poirot, but mostly these days he very cleverly keeps himself to himself, whilst leaving Arthur to do all the heavy lifting. Steve was born in Leeds, where as a young man he worked on the crew for shows at the Leeds Grand, eventually becoming assistant stage manager at the Leeds Playhouse and then a theatre carpenter at the Northcott Theatre in Exeter. Finally, in 1979, he enrolled at the Central School of Speech and Drama in London. It was during this time that he hit on the idea of Count Arthur. It was some years before he really started to expand the character as a comedy routine in stand-up clubs, taking him to the Edinburgh Festival and onto Radio 4 with Count Arthur Strong's radio show. He's done seven series now, with a number of Christmas specials, winning lots of awards on the way, as well as a massive and dedicated following. He's done more than 350 live shows, over five further Edinburgh festivals, and nine national sellout tours. And in 2010, Count Arthur finally got his own TV series for BBC Two. So, let's find out what the man behind the legend would choose to put in his time capsule. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So my favourite thing about you that came up researching you, as it were, 
mistake, you're Jeffrey Palmer's favourite carpenter. No, no, I was, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, I worked for a few people like that. I built some fitted wardrobes for Suggs. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Did a heck of a story. <laughs> I think it was his wife, Anne, that uh, was the driving force behind the fitted wardrobes, I have to say. <laughs> In fact, Anne got me into blood donating, so was his wife. So there's a little story. <laughs> no, really? I had an absence of many years and she uh, she was going round the corner and she said, do you give blood? And I said, oh, well, I haven't for years. And she said, oh, you should, they're doing it around the corner. So it got me going again. And I tried that a couple of years ago. For years, I had this sort of needle phobia, I think, called being a man. And uh, I did faint at the sight of needles when I was young. How have you been getting on with the coverage? Because every time you speak about COVID, they show somebody getting a needle stuck in their arm. How have you been getting on with that? I've had both injections. Yeah. And each time said to the people, I don't care, go on, just stick it in there. I want to watch it go in. Yeah, I had my second jab yesterday. Oh, uh, did you? Mine was on Sunday. Well, good. Brilliant. All right, lovely. Well, let's have a go at it. Steve Delaney, how fantastic to have you on my time capsule, or as I like to call you, Jeffrey Palmer's favourite carpenter. Well, that's an accolade I'm very happy to take. <laughs> he was a very extremely nice guy, I have to say. I went with my girlfriend at the time when I went down to price the job up and... Uh, she sat there shelling peas while I measured up. They were shelling peas in the kitchen that they grew in the garden. No, he's a nice guy. Yeah, I worked with him a couple of times, actually. I, well, I did a series of the series of Reggie Perrin that didn't involve Leonard Rossiter because it was done after he died and therefore was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're going to choose some things for my time capsule and then at the end of it, we shall bury the time capsule and preserve the things that you cherish and get rid of the thing that you want to get rid of. If only it was that simple. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is on this podcast. Well, you know, if, there could be many more than four or five things that I'd like to put in a time capsule and I do, I do worry uh, about these things, lists of things, because as soon as I've said something, I, I, something else occurs to me and I think, oh, well, you know, it should have been that in there. And I live in dread of being contradicted by somebody that knows me very well, saying, you told me it was this, <laughs> and you haven't mentioned that. But, uh, all right, the first thing that is a rather meaningful thing to me is a car. Will that fit in there? Yeah, yeah, it's big enough. You can put anything you like in there, really. My first Saab 900 Oh, lovely. I say my first because I've had three over the last 20 years and I still drive one now. Um, I love them as cars. I'm a, I am a bit of a car head, mm. so much so that I, I actually went to a car show and met Mike Brewer from Wheeler Dealers. <laughs> it's just such a shame Ed China was on his dinner break because I didn't get to meet Ed China, who is a, <laughs> a magnificent mechanic as far as I'm concerned. Mm. But um, I tend to sort out tickets for my tour for Mike Brewer's dad. <laughs> <laughs> no, based on the his his, his dad and his mum come to most of my shows down sort of Brighton in Sussex in uh, in that way. So mm. I always sort tickets out for them for a tour now. Uh, but but my first Saab nine hundred was a, a blue one, and bizarrely, its registration number was BLU. Oh, nice! Only cost six hundred pounds when I bought it. Yeah, and I had it for God, I must have had it for about eight years. And I I at the time I didn't have much money, so I. I tended to replace every single part with a slightly less old part I got from a scrapyard. <laughs> so much so that I must have replaced most of the engine. And, I, I you know, I hate working on cars myself, um, but I did it because I have had to, you know. If I wanted the brakes doing, it would cost me £12. If I spent a day and a half doing it myself, <laughs> an hour's job, 
yeah. whereas it would cost me 60 or 80 pounds if I took it to the garage and I couldn't afford it at the time. But but I, the reason I, 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 you know, I love the car so much, um, the memory of the car is because I bought it a few months before I met my wife. And so we did a lot of traveling in the car and it, it was a meaningful car to us both. Mm. And after about 18 months, um, we split up. We split up for about six years. And and then we met again, and I was still driving this beat of old Saab that I love. <laughs> it actually lasted for about another three months, and then the engine just went. It just gave up. Um, I moved from London to Wales after we met uh, again within about mm. four or five weeks. Um, I left London and moved to Wales, where and my wife was living at the time, working at the time. And um, the car just got us there, just uh. got me there, and it packed up. Uh, so it was a very meaningful vehicle because it lasted just as long as it needed to to get me back to my wife. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. So Little Blue, as we'll call it. Now, the thing I love about uh, Saabs, and I have to admit that I do know quite a lot about Saabs, so ah. that surprises you, doesn't it? And I owned a Saab 900 and I've had a Saab 9000. Oh, I've got a Saab 96 as well, the precursor oh. to the 900, the bullet. What a beauty. I love the quirkiness of it. I love the fact that the key goes in basically where the brake handle is. Yes, quite. The first time I ever got in a car like that, a friend of mine, well, this is a very long time ago, I went to see a play and I had my baby daughter with me. And uh, at one point she became restless, as babies tend to. And my friend said, well, you can go and sit in my car. And he gave me the keys to his Saab. And I'd never been in a Saab. And so I sat in the car and then I just couldn't work out where the key went. <laughs> sat in there in the freezing cold. I was driving in the Saab one, so the guy flagged me down. And, and he said, how do you get the key out of a Saab? <laughs> I've got one, it's round the corner, I can't get the key out. There is a knack to it, yes. Uh, consequently, I'm, I'm just, uh, my son's uh, teaching my son to drive, mm. although I'm not, I'm just laughing a lot. <laughs> but um, I'm not teaching him to drive in the Saab, although it's the much easier car to actually drive. It's just because of mm. the, the vagaries of it, the key and reverse and... And, and those things that sidetrack you. So, you know, I don't want yeah. him to start learning in a Saab because he'd have the opposite problem you had. Yeah, true. <laughs> Be getting in and wondering where the key went in a normal ignition. <laughs> but they do say that real Saab fans are split between the people who like the more modern Saab since they were taken over. But real Saab fans will only buy a Saab that was made when Saab were independent. Yeah, I mean, the one I've got now is the last year Saab made the 900, mm -hmm. a red one, and it's the um, Monza Red, I think it's called. And actually, the last Saab on the production line was a Monza Red Saab, a two-door Monza Red Saab that they drove straight into the Saab Museum. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah, must, pretty much the same batch as the one I'm driving now. Mm. We keep thinking about, do we need all these cars? And I keep thinking, yeah, of course we do. Well, particularly if most of the time you're keeping it in the garage. Well, no, I'm not keeping that, that one in the garage. The 96 is in the garage. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> which I've had to rent specifically to house a Saab. Yeah, so you really are a petrol head. Uh, a little bit, yes. Mm. My friend Jamie Ricks, who's the son of Brian Ricks, the great farceur, uh -huh. always says that his favourite car was a Saab 900 Turbo. Yes, mine's a Turbo. The old blue is a GLS, mm. which I used to think was, um, um, what's the guy that did Bullseye? Ted, um, not Ted Rogers, he did 3 one. Jim Bowen. Jim Bowen, that's mm. it. He used to say Great Lovely Super, so I used to think that GLS <laughs> stood for Great Lovely Super. <laughs> All right, Steve, brilliant. We shall put your lovely blue BLU Saab 900 GLS 
into the great, lovely, super time capsule. And that's your first item. Wonderful. So what's number two? Well, um, the next thing would have to be some power tools, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'll get more specific than this, but tools have played such a, a, a large part in my life because I... Um, I used to be a carpenter. I was a theatre carpenter for a number of years. Mm. So I was always kind of handy with, 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 with tools and wood and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and when I left drama college in 82, mm. I, I very quickly realised that I wasn't going to be given any <laughs> acting work. <laughs> I couldn't actually see a scenario in which I was going to be given acting work. Um, so I started picking up bits of carpentry again. Uh, and unfortunately, I'd sold all my toolkit off when I went to drama college, as you do. Yeah. Because I relied on Swiss Cottage Market, Saturday Market. I was, went to Central, which in Swiss Cottage Market was right outside Central. And I relied on that for my income. Mm. You know, I'd borrow money all week <laughs> and I'd pay it back on a Monday, money I'd made up the market, having a stall. So I sold all my tools there for one thing. So, I, you know, I bought a few tools back and, and, and I, I, I earned a living... Um, working as a carpenter, for myself, uh, specifically at that point. But then I met some people that ran um, the big architectural salvage place in London, Lasco in Shoreditch. Oh, right, yeah. The guy that ran it, I met him. And he had some workshops in Hampstead, and I lived in Belsize Park at the time. And he used to uh, let me work there pretty much whenever whenever I wanted to. I'd go in, do some work, fill a timesheet in. And we, I learned to do things properly there. Mm. There were a couple of old boys. There was a guy who was way into his 70s, uh, still still working there past retirement. And, um, you know, I learned quite a lot there about how to do things properly. So it was an amalgam of, of theatre carpentry, which is more adventurous. And I'd say, yeah, of course yeah. you can have that. And then I'd think, well, wait a minute, you can, uh, you, you can have that on the stage. You can't have it in a house. <laughs> it would look crap from the back. But, uh, yeah, so so I'd have to have some uh, a power tool in there. And I think the... I've been doing a lot of woodwork at the moment, which we might come to a, a little bit later with one of my other my other choices. Mm. So I've been investing in uh, quite a lot of tools in this last year, 18 months. And one tool I've re-bought myself that I really missed and didn't realise how much I've missed is a Makita router the half, with a half-inch chuck. It's just <laughs> the most versatile, heavy-duty machine you'll ever come across in your life. Um, I've never had the nerve to use a router. Oh, God. I know. They look fantastic. The idea that you can take a, a squared-off piece of wood and then make it just create shapes oh, yeah, in the yeah. side of it. You can do all sorts with it. Like I say, it's really versatile. I mean, even for kind of the sort of bog-standard things, mosses and tenon joints and, yeah. and things like that, making panels up. It's fabulous. My woodwork teacher will be turning in his grave. The idea that you don't cut a mortise and tenon joint with a saw and then chisel out those. By things. hand. Oh, no, no, no. Mm. No, the router's a fabulous thing for doing it, and it does speed <laughs> it up incredibly, yeah. So I'd have to put that in there. Um, I, ha I did have a, a Makita router that I bought about 30 years ago, but and house moves and things, it just got put in sheds and got damp and corroded and so this is this is the modern version of that old router i had and it's uh, you know the uh it's even better than the original machine so yeah i'd have to really? put that in there yeah lovely. everybody needs a router <laughs> come on <laughs> so where did you start doing theater carpentry then when i was 19 i started work in in both theaters in leeds as a casual i mean i'd, I'd wanted to act before that and had done some theater workshop courses with leeds theater and education we mm. had a really forward-thinking um inspector for drama there called a guy called david morton who set these um weekend courses up and uh, summer courses, a six-week summer course. And although I'd, I was kind of working for a living at the time, 
because I left school as early as you could. I had no uh, aspiration to, to, to stay on at school. Uh, and I think that was pretty much the last year you could leave at 15. Mm. And my birthday being in the August, I actually left before my, I was 15. So I had lots of jobs before that. The first job I had, actually, I'd like to put in there, but I haven't. You see, things are occurring to me now, which was in Leeds Market, <laughs> which was a fabulous Leeds Indoor Market. I'd like to put that in there too, but... Uh, That's a beautiful I, place, isn't it? Oh, it was fabulous. In those days, it was all original and all Edwardian wrought iron work and balconies and glass roof. And then, and then probably about five, six years after I left, half of it... Two thirds of it maybe burnt down. Mm. The bit that I used to work in still exists, it's still original, but um, the rest of it burnt down. Yeah, it's a great town, Leeds. I have to say, it's one of my favourite towns. I mean, and Leeds Grand is just the most incredible theatre, isn't it? Well, I, yeah, I worked there for uh, quite a while, and uh, an actual fact, the the normally the varieties when we go back there now, and they they run the same the same company runs the Grand and the varieties these days, mm-hmm. but. Um, Two years, two tours ago, rather, I went to the Grand, and that was fantastic because I, you know, I, my godfather um, was the chief electrician at the Grand when I was, when I was nineteen. He worked at the uh, the old Leeds Empire, which was knocked down as an electrician, and then he went to the Grand as um, as chief electrician. <gasps> There's quite a bit of him in Arthur, I think. Mm-hmm. He was our neighbour, and he was my godfather, and he was an absolute eccentric nutter. <laughs> you know, he'd wear a 1920s dinner suit uh, with a carnation in his jacket and pince-nez glasses on his nose uh, uh, for a, for a fir- the first night. He was a big gin drinker. His eyes were the were the, like pinheads. The pupils in his eyes were like pinheads. He was pickled in gin. Um, but he was a legend. Everybody that went to the Grand that, that met Billy Kay mm. remembers him and knows him. Um, the Leodis site, which is the Roman name for Leeds, I believe. Um, there's mm. a photograph of Billy Kay on there, um, standing at a bus stop, waiting to go into work with a bowler hat on and pinstripe <laughs> trousers uh, and a tight... Um, black jacket i mean he was he used to wear a straw boater in the summer oh wonderful he was a he was a real character and there is a there mm. is a, a bit of him in arthur uh the stoop as well he slightly had arthur's stoop too but he could be extremely vulgar and rudely entertaining also he was a, <laughs> he was a bizarre individual but oh god people don't never never forgot him um so i started working at both the Leeds Grand and the Leeds Playhouse as a casual. And um, I was offered a job at the, the Playhouse. And I always had in the back of my head that, that in those days you had to, the, the equity cards were the problem, uh, or could have been a problem. So I always had that I'd, I'd, I'd take the job at the Rep Theatre because there'd be there'd be opportunities to get an equity card. Yeah. So that's when I started working uh, with Wood. I had no, I'd shown no interest before I was 19 particularly. And I started being given props to make. Um, you know, so I made. I ended up over a period of about a year making bigger and bigger props till I was, make, you know, the kind of one of the main prop makers there. And then after about eighteen months, I went into the workshops full time. I was a bit, I was a bit lower the fed up of working every night, so I went into the workshops full time and became a carpenter there. Then I went to the Northcott in Exeter as a carpenter, and from there oh, to, that... to Drama College. Did you ever see at the Grand? the books that had been signed by all the acts that had been there? The recent ones, the ones that they bring in, yeah. I haven't seen seen ones going back in time. The Grand is, a, I think the Leeds Grand is a Frank Matcham house. I go everywhere in them. Uh, you know, I'll, mm. I'll, I'll, I'll get, I always get to the theatre very, very early anyway. I'm there from 12 in the afternoon just in case I'm needed. Or uh, That's where I like to be when I'm doing a show. 
So, you know, I go everywhere in them. So all the theatres I've played, I've combed the buildings. What I love about them is you go into the, the furthest away corner from where anybody might possibly go and you see the most ornate carvings in the ceilings and the entablatures and, and things, things that people would never see. The attention to no. detail in those places was phenomenal. It's extraordinary, isn't it, the care that was taken over them. Yeah, we have a beautiful... Well, you've, you've played Tunbridge Wells, haven't you? Yes. Uh, and, and that's where I live. And so that's a bit of a barn. The assembly rooms. That's right, yes. Yeah. Around the corner from there is a beautiful opera house, which is a Weatherspoons pub. Yes, I know. I, 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 I clocked that last time I was there. Mm. Such a shame, isn't it? I know. Can you imagine playing that place? I know. At least it's, uh, it, you know, it's got people in it heating the building and it's not... <laughs> you know, I mean, I love that kind of architecture. I joined um, Mecco Bingo in, in Tooting because there was an old cinema there that they took over and, and it was a fantastic place. I mean, mm. it was probably something like a 1,500-seater cinema in the 1920s. I, I never used to play bingo. I just used to go with a mate and sit in the balcony you know, with a pint, <laughs> a pint of lager looking at the place. It's got... Either side of the stage, it had minstrels that looked like little Errol Flynn's. So I, I just used to go there to have a, have a drink and just sit there for quietly. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like a church, really, I suppose. I like the um, backstage of those theatres as well, the way that the status of the actor is reflected in the conditions that they have to get changed in. Mm, you know, mm. So if you go to the really old theatres in London, dressing room number one always has its own bathroom, probably has a shower, it has a bed, has a nice sofa, a place to entertain people. There's the Peggy Ashcroft room at the Gilgood Theatre, which is just a beautiful little room. And then you go up the stairs and the next two rooms are okay. And then you get to the top. My dressing yeah. room. <laughs> <laughs> and they're always a right mess. I did a pantomime at the, at the Palladium, but it's after they did the refit backstage, and I'd, I'd done a, um, a kind of lunchtime thing there when they were trying to publicise some variety or something there or other for yeah. the Palladium itself. Uh, I just, you know, turned up and did a little 10-minute spot there uh, f- for that before they did it up. So I thought, God, this is fantastic. I love all the old, you know, the old dressing rooms and, and the mm. grime, the years of grime. And um, But they'd done it all out and, you know... It's like you were in a doctor's waiting room, your dressing room. It was they'd taken a lot of the character away. But oh, I was shame. in probably one of the smallest dressing rooms there when I was doing that pantomime. And it, yeah. within a year, I'd gone back there because we did one date at the Palladium on my next tour. And I went back there and I was in Paul O'Grady's dressing room that time. <laughs> and I tell you, the difference between Paul O'Grady's dressing room and Count Arthur Strong's was in- immense. I can imagine. But it was a nice moment to go back and to be in, in, in the main dressing room there for my own show. Yes, you feel odd, don't you? In fact, I'm going to put that in there at the time capsule as well. That's 15. No, 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 we're putting in the router. That's it. Okay. That goes in there. All right, that's your second item. So let's move on to item number three. Right, we have to take a short break here for some adverts. But we'll be back with more of Steve Delaney and Count Arthur shortly. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's discover what the third thing is that Steve Delaney would like to put in his time capsule. Well, uh, this one's very simple, and it's uh, it's just the, the email from Radio 4 telling me that the first radio series had been commissioned. I mean, ah. it was a huge moment. We were living in a little cottage in um, just outside Froome, and my office was a shed that we'd bought off the rack and I'd, I'd insulated <laughs> and put a lead across the, the, the little tarmac road from, from our house to the one bits of our garden. So it was a, it was a massive thing, really. You know, I, I mean, I love the radio and I have a great affection for, for, for radio comedy because uh, mm. it, it's a lot of my early comedic memories are Sunday mornings, Clitheroe Kid, Round the Horn, that kind of thing. Mm. So it was a really meaningful thing. It wasn't out of the blue because we've been working towards it for some time. But those mm. things always kind of catch you on the hop because, you know, uh, you dismiss them. That's there. That's in. You dismiss it and you kind of get on with something else or you stop thinking about it. So it seems as though it's coming out the blue, although you've put in a lot of work for it, you know. So why should yeah. you be surprised in a sense? But it was a big moment for us, me and my wife. You defend yourself by doing that, though. You actually push things away sort of in case somebody rings up and says, oh, no, we decided not to do it. I can imagine the relief and the excitement of it and, uh, and also the fact that your journey as a as an actor is a long arc. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, and, and, you know, I've kind of done it in my own, my own way at my own pace and that was really important to me. None of it I've felt has been particularly forced because I had to do something too soon. You know, yeah. if I'd been offered a radio series after my first Edinburgh in 1997, I don't know what it would have been like. You know, you've. I, I mean, I, I like the craft of radio. I like the craft of writing. I like the craft of sitting down and writing and 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 writing a three beat joke, you know, mm. uh, or realizing that uh, a joke that you made ten pages ago, you can call back, you yeah. know, and then you can call it back again. And you know, those moments are really satisfying when when you're writing. So I think radio is a, is a real craft, spoken word. You know, I mean, it's mm. hopefully people are being a little bit more attentive to you than, than, than when they're watching you on television and they have lots of things to, to gauge what's going on by. They have the visual, yeah. so it doesn't matter if they miss a word or two there because they're seeing what you're doing. As well. so, but radio, I mean, I, I think people have to give a little bit more or work a mm. little bit harder. So it was definitely a, a pop in a cork moment, that, uh, that, that series. Yeah. And that was in, you know, it's fantastic that um, that was in 2015, 25? God, when was that? 2015. Is that all? No, it must be longer No, than no, that. you're absolutely right. It was 2005. There we are, yes. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm delighted that, 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 I'm, that, I, that I'm still uh, writing for radio. 
Um, I love yeah. the radio shows, and and um, sadly we lost Dave Manfield, who who who, uh, who is a founder member and c- contributor. Um, great comedy man, great comedy mind. Uh, we lost mm. him a little over a year ago, which came out of the bloom. Was really really upsetting for everyone. Yeah, but you know we hope to go on. Uh, you know mm. to say it's what Dave would have wanted is is, is silly, <laughs> really, because it's absolutely not what Dave would have wanted. Uh, or it's what any of us wants, frankly. But um, but there we are. What I love about Count Arthur and the whole way that you write it is the use of language, is the thought that's gone into what words actually mean and how to twist them and make him say things that are absurd, that sound sensible. That's the joy of it, I think. No, I mean, I, personally, I love those those flights of fancy. I always uh, call it, a, it's a stream of consciousness. And, uh, and yeah. you know, whether, whether I'm writing a book as Arthur or... Or a stage. People often ask me to describe stage shows, uh, particularly when I'm, uh, you know, trying to promote them. And I was, I, I, all I can say is, it's, it's. I can't really tell you much about it. It has to appear as though it's a stream of consciousness, and it's all yeah. unraveling before you. So if I say it's about this, that, and the other, it's not really. I mean, I know what Arthur's in- intention is, but mm. I, I, and I always think by the time Arthur gets to the end of a show, he thinks he's done a bloody best job possible. You know. No matter how much has fallen off, the wheels have fallen off, you know, if he was in one of those circus cars, he'd be sat just holding the steering wheel and everything would be gone. And he'd think, oh, this is, yeah, this is pretty good, isn't it? The optimism of the character as well is... The, yes, is the... no, no. And that's what I love about him too. He's extremely optimistic. It's always um, a, a, an eye on the main chance. What can I, how can I turn this round? What can I, yeah. you know, I'll do this. I know what I'll do. I'll buy, I've, you know, I've said it before. How much of those? I'll buy five and I'll get a market store. Where, where's the market? <laughs> and it's, it, he is optimistic. And I, I think that's something some people miss, I think, uh, sometimes. Mm. Yeah, there is a percentage of the listening audience, or in fact, I think there must be people who are brought along to your shows and things, who people say, come and see this. It's it's fantastically funny. And you see people at your shows just looking at the stage and looking at everyone else as, as if they've gone mad. I know. They just yeah. don't get it. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> as long as it's the right way around, as long as they're, you know, yeah, yeah. they're the 25% rather than the 75%. I don't mind that. In fact, I like that. I don't do it on purpose. It's just a character. I, 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 I yeah. don't set out to do anything on purpose with Arthur. It's just kind of what comes out. Yeah. The stream of consciousness thing is what I, I, I love about him. I, I very, very rarely radio live show uh, books, uh, very rarely sit down and map out what I'm doing. A, lo- a, a lot of the radio shows, I'll think, I'll start with a monologue in Arthur's uh, kitchen, you know, I don't know, mm. what can he be doing? Uh, all right, he's steaming the stamps off letters or something like that. And that will just be the starting point. And then yeah. after about 30, 30 pages, I'll think, ah, oh, it's about this. <laughs> so I go back to the <laughs> beginning and then I'll start feeding those things in, you know. Um I did work with with a producer once on an idea for for telly, and and he asked me to map out Arthur's life, and I did give it a go for about five minutes, and I thought, no, I can't do this. Uh, it's, it places too many restrictions, I think, because I'm quite pedantic, and if I say something, I tend to think ah, I've got to stick with that because I've said it, yeah. and I would hate to feel I was not doing what I'd said I was going to do in that sense. That would enclose him, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. When he says something, he believes it. He's, you meet those people that they say things, and you think, is that true? I had an uncle like that. He may well have met Winston Churchill, but I never quite believed it. But he says that he did. 
it was part of his history. And if it's true, then wonderful. And if it's not true, still wonderful. Absolutely. The fact that, that was one of his stories. And he told it so many times, I think he was sure he'd met Winston Churchill. Arthur does that, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I, see, I, I'm not sure, and I don't want to answer whether uh, Arthur was was in, as he calls it, Bridge Up the River Kwai. Yeah. <laughs> he could have just read a headline in, in 1958 about it or something, or a thought in 1958. I should have been in that. And consequently Indeed. thinks he was, you know. Uh, yeah. People do that sort of thing all the time. They embellish they embellish the story somebody told them. A, it didn't happen to them in the first place, and B, they embellish it, and then it becomes yeah. about them. I've met I've met lots of people like that. The other thing about Arthur is that they, they, um, particularly writing books. I'm, I'm uh, I've been writing uh, through through lockdown uh, the second Inspector Marsden mysteries novella because um, <laughs> Arthur is a renowned criminologist, and and you know the great thing about. Uh, it's also a difficult thing to get to gauge right, but the great thing about that is is Arthur thinks at times he's the hero of the book. He thinks he's Inspector Marsden. Uh, it, beca- <laughs> it does become apparent he thinks he's Inspector Marsden when it suits him. You know, he'll also do something like um, Inspector Marsden looked at his watch and realised he'd missed the first 20 sodden minutes of Bargain Hunt. So <laughs> I think that's quite enough for this chapter till I've been to Liddles. <laughs> and then he just stops, you know. Um, Brilliant. So, of course, sometimes that can go a bit too far because it makes the story of the book. The story of the book still has to kind of shine through. But, you know, if he needs to go to the toilet, he'll write Inspector Marsden needs to go to the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) It's all very immediate with him, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's what's in front of him. And it's perfectly acceptable. It's all perfectly acceptable. I need to go to the toilet. Yeah, oh, well, he'll need to go to the toilet if I need to go to the toilet. Because when was the last time he went to the toilet? He hasn't been to the toilet for ages. (laughs) In fact, I'm a little bit worried. I might get get him to go to the doctor's on the way back from the toilet. (laughs) Where does it end? Uh, it's uh, It's brilliant. I do love that character. It's amazing. And I love the fact that you've got such a long development of him that it goes right back. It goes right back to you doing it at drama school, doesn't it? Yeah, and it must be about 81 or something like that, the first time I I, I messed around with it. And it was just messing around. It was to try... Uh, you know, we uh, we all had to go to the zoo or something, or pretend we were circus acts. That's it. Pretend we were circus acts. All right. And I did a circus strongman who was Count Arthur Strong, who sang "Bye Bye Blackbird" and mind mind hauling a piano up on a pulley and catching a piano, <laughs> and then had a tussle <laughs> with Dracula, uh, which ended up with them him and Dracula biting a a history book. <laughs> To show how strong they were. It was just a, a crazy little 10-minute thing, but it got loads of laughs, you know, and it really yeah, surprised yeah. me because I was just messing about, really. And it was down to one of the tutors there, who's a great friend of mine now, a guy called Lyle Watson, who's um, primarily a writer these days. Um, hmm. I used to run into him outside of drama college every now and again, and he'd always say, why don't you, you ought to think about doing something with that... That thing you did, you know, you should think about that. He was from the north too, so maybe that's why I had a, a soft spot for it. He said, I've been directing something down in Wales with some other character comedians. What how about, um, you know, finding a venue or something and doing the thing you did? And So we, we, we booked the um, King's Head in Crouch End for a series of uh, once every two week dates over a, over a couple of months with two or three other character comedians. We put in an evening a character comedy, um, which is where Arthur got his first outings. You know, there was a, the first gig, there was a guy there from Madame Jojo's, which used to be the Raymond Review Bar. Yes, I know. I remember it well. 
You know it well from when it was the Raymond Review Bar. <laughs> yeah, I used to visit all the time. Still got the Mac. It became the comic strip. That's right. Yeah. And very early in my career, I performed there. That was when I packed acting in because I thought, you know, I've written my own material. I've had a lot of fun yeah. doing this and putting it together. I got immediate feedback where the audience liked it and I got two mm. gigs out of it. And so yeah. I, I did literally call up my agent at the time and, and say, you know, I think that's it, really. And, and, you know, that was a great thing about, at that point, working as a carpenter, which is always something I'd not particularly valued. I always slightly resented it as something got in the way of me not getting any acting work, I, you know, in my head. And that's where it really came in, because, as I say, I, I brought everything on at my own pace. So I used to do things like I'd hire the Canal Cafe in, in, in Maida Vale over two months, a, a night a week. Um, and I'd, I'd put on a show there. Wow. And, you know, I'd virtually print tickets and things and I'd be working during the days of Carpenter and I'd be, you know, putting new bits in there. And, and that's where it all developed, but it all developed at my pace. Yeah, and thank the Lord you got that email saying you have a series. Oh, you remembered what that, that was? <laughs> this seems such a long time ago. I know, it is a long time ago. I don't even write it down. Very good, yeah. Okay, so Steve, what's your fourth item? Um, it would be the memory of my son teaching himself to play bass, electric bass, in lockdown. He's gone from somebody who wasn't particularly interested in uh, instrument or music mm -hmm. to somebody who can play a r really rather complicated bass lines now. And it's <laughs> taken him next to no time. And I watch his, you know, I'm somebody who's played three chords on a guitar. I love guitars, you know. Uh, you, you may have gathered I am quite a collector of things. Um, <laughs> and guitars is something I collect. I have many more guitars than chords I know. <laughs> so I, we've always, I've always had guitars lying around. And I, 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 uh, the back end of my last tour, I bought um, a bass ukulele, uh, semi-acoustic. Uh, I thought, mm. God, this is going to be a little fun. So I fiddled around with that and brought that. And he, he picked that up and started fiddling with it. And so much so I bought an acoustic bass. And he taught himself to play on that, and uh, and and now he has an electric bass. <laughs> and uh, I look at his fingers and think, I, "You make me sick." <laughs> they're, literally, they're up and down the neck like that, and it's uh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm very envious. Um, so what you're saying is that there is somebody who's done something worthwhile in lockdown because I don't know anybody else. I, I honestly thought I'd I'd learn a bit of French in lockdown, a bit more French. <laughs> in fact, I've probably forgotten what. I... <laughs> <laughs> the little bit more I learnt when I was there. Yes, so I've learnt nothing in lockdown. No, me neither. Nothing, apart from if you drink that much, your stomach does get bigger. Oh, yeah, I've, dr I've gone through periods where I've drunk a lot more. I've gone through periods where I haven't drunk anything. I've gone through yeah. periods where I've changed my diet. I've gone through periods where I've eaten loads. <laughs> it's just boring, isn't it, essentially? <laughs> it's boring, yeah. <laughs> it is. How old is your son? Um, he's just coming up to 18. He's just, just uh, finishing his uh, A-level year. Such as it was. <laughs> it's been a strange time for him, but he's done very, very well. In fact, I think oh, he's probably responded better to, to working like this than he would if he'd been at school. Good. I'm just going to very, very quickly shovel another <laughs> another thing in. Oh, OK. And it's a, it's a photograph of our place in France. We, we, we've got a house in France, which sounds very swanky, but it isn't. We, we bought it a couple of years ago, and it's a ruin, and I'm, I'm doing mm. it up. But I, I, twice I've had to come back from it. 
<laughs> because of lockdown. Yeah. I ripped the first floor out uh, last time I was there and started replacing it. And I would have, I've just arranged to stay another week and would have finished it if it hadn't been for lockdown. So I've had this unfinished floor in our French house in my head. Um, and like I say, it sounds very swanky, but it isn't. It's a ruin in a bit of land, and it costs less than our three-year-old cash guy did when we bought that. But it's uh, it's mm. a hugely meaningful uh, little plot of land somewhere. Sorry, where is it in France? Right in the middle uh, of France, yeah. a deep agricultural France, which is a part mm. of France we really love because it's its mm. own thing, and it's you could be anywhere. And it's yeah. where I'll, I'll go to peg out, I think, with a huge glass of Cote d'Aron in my hand. Um, <laughs> when I've finished the floor, obviously. <laughs> and suddenly, oh my God, I'm a carpenter. How brilliant. <laughs> and do you know, the thing is, we could have gone there whenever we wanted up till a couple of years ago. Yeah. Not being able to go into the European Union on the same basis that we have for the last 40 odd years is so confining. I mean, <sighs> I, you know, I, I, I never particularly get into politics, but I, I think people were so narrow minded and wrong when they voted to to leave the European Union. I think it should have been reformed from within, for one thing. But, you know, getting our sovereignty back and ruling the waves again, we don't, we're so confined, we don't really rule. We can't, <laughs> you, you know, we can't hop abroad and stay there for as long as we want. You, know, you could have got on the ferry to France and you could have thought, oh, I think I'll stay here, rent a house mm -hmm. for six months. You can't do that now. No. You can go for 90 days out of every 180. That's it. So I, I, yeah. I think we will settle there at one point, in, at some point in the future. I spend my life looking on the internet at, uh, at, as you say, absurdly priced houses in the middle of France, in those beautiful little rural places. Just gorgeous, gorgeous countryside. Nobody ever moves there, and you can buy places for, I don't know, 25,000 euros. Or less. <laughs> Oh, let's. Oh, let's. Oh, God. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. All right, I'm off. That's it. <laughs> I'm going. Okay, I shall put in there the image of your son practicing his guitar. Over his shoulder is the photograph of the uh, that'll do the cottage in France. There that you are. So do. we've combined them, so you haven't sort of cheated, really. No, good. good. <laughs> okay, we've got one final thing to put in, Steve. This is something you want to get rid of, yes? Well, it's it's my count. <laughs> <laughs> Simply put, it's my accounts. You know, uh, it's not tax. It's not paying tax. Happy to pay tax. If I pay a lot of tax, it means I'm doing rather well. Yeah. I believe if you're earning quite a bit of money, you should be paying quite a bit of tax. It's uh, nothing to do with that. It's just the ins and outs of doing tax. You know, I have an accountant. Even so, I have to put receipts together. I can't even picking a receipt up to find where the date is on it. You know, sometimes that takes me 15 minutes. <laughs> where do they put the dates on receipts? I can't get my head around things like VAT. I earn some money and, and when I'm paid, somebody has to add VAT to it. And then I have to pay the VAT back. <laughs> it's absurd. There's got to be a simpler way of doing things that doesn't involve me at all, apart from somebody telling me how much I owe. Why don't they just take some money at source and never tell us about yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Then they can take as much as they like. We won't care. We won't even know about it. Yeah, I worry about that sort of thing all the time. I worry about I, when I'm told my VAT is due. And, you know, the truth is it's one of those things that you know you, you could really, if you're being truthful, you know you could sort out in the morning easily. <laughs> but it's one of those things that you put off and put off and put off and it becomes this brooding yeah. kind of, in your head there, it's a weight and it's... So I really <laughs> would love my accounts to go in there and never to, for me to see them again. 
I agree with you, is the curse of all self-employed people. Some people love it. They do it months in advance. I always contact my accountant on about the 20th of January every year. And I always say, hello, sorry, it's me. I've got some boxes with things in. Is that any good? Absolutely hopeless. So can I have that in there? Absolutely. As long as I can shove mine in with them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's it. Your accounts are gone. You never have to worry about them again. Steve, it's been lovely to meet you and to get to know you, having been a fan of your work for so long. Well, thank you very much. Thank Thank you you very much. My first podcast, by the way, the first uh, podcast I've ever done. Oh, brilliant. There we are. Well, I'm very excited. Well, I I look forward to seeing you on tour when you get the chance to tour next. Okay, well, we're touring next February. We're back on next February through to June, so... And we're doing the assembly rooms in Tunbridge Wells. Yeah, I should be there. February 22. All right, thank you, mate. Yeah, thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Steve Delaney. If you've had fun listening to this episode, then please do tell your friends. I mean, if you follow us on Twitter, you can retweet one of the posts we do about My Time Capsule. Or you can just do your own thing on social media. Uh, be careful. Or, if you're just weird, you can actually tell people, you know, with your voice, in front of them, like in front of their face so they can hear it in their ears and things. Yeah. Anyway, you'll find me on My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us. And do subscribe to the podcast for all other episodes, past and yet to come. Then perhaps you can leave a review and rate the show, which we greatly appreciate. You can listen to, stream or download the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify to keep the composer in the poverty to which he's become accustomed. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to get a router. Yeah, I had the faintest idea what they are, but apparently no man should be without one. I hope he gets rid of wrinkles and beer bellies. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.